Hey everybody, what is going on? And welcome once again, yes, once again to the Everyday Missionary Podcast. This is episode 229, and I am actually recording this a little out of due timing. Normally I do this on Wednesday mornings. You look out the window over my shoulder. If you're watching, it's nighttime now. I'm a little behind, but listen, I'm actually getting it done this week as opposed to every other week, which is a huge bonus. Now, I'm excited about this week, not just because, hey, I'm finally getting back on track with the podcast, but I'm also excited because it is Super Bowl week. And frankly, I'm enthusiastic about the teams. I'm actually enthusiastic about the game. I think it's pretty cool for a long time. I was a Matthew Stafford fan. For those who may not know, he is the quarterback of the Rams, but before he was with the Rams, he was with the Lions. I grew up as a Lions fan because of my stepdad. I still love the Lions, and they're still terrible, and they are destined to be terrible for probably as long as the Bengals had been terrible till they made it to the Super Bowl. So anyway, I was happy for Matthew Stafford that he's finally getting to the big game. He's going to do it on Sunday. I'm... I'm I'm torn, man. You know, like, I I, I kind of want the Bengals to win, but I kind of want Matthew Stafford to win, and so I kind of want the Rams to win because of Stafford, but I love the story of the Bengals, and that's why it's going to be a great Super Bowl, because it's got compelling stories behind it. But that's not the mission of the day here in the podcast. No, we're not here to talk about the Super Bowl. We're not here to talk about the slightly changing weather. I noticed some allergies just this week, so I'm like, ah, there it is. Spring is a sprungin'. I know that Poxitani Phil didn't pop out and tell us anything good, but hey, whatever. Doesn't matter. Uh, All kinds of things going on, but we are here to continue this whole series on this idea of trying to unlearn some of the the baggage or the bloat within our evangelicalism and get back to a more Christ-centric vision for uh, what we do in the world. Because this podcast is not here to be um, a pundit for evangelicalism, obviously. It's here to be a pundit for Jesus, right? That's the heart behind this. And in particular, how we can be effective in reaching out to our culture, in loving our culture, in making a difference in our culture. And obviously by now, you know that really what my particular opinion is on this, or my my take, if you will, is that, you know, it's not that everything in evangelicalism in a wholesale way has been bad, but I think there's just things that we've kind of stacked into uh, what we do and how we do it and what we emphasize and what we feel we're supposed to fight about or fight for or argue for or debate or demand or whatever else. And and those things have gotten in the way of an effective witness. And even as I shared last week a bit in the podcast, or if you listen to Redemption Church on Sunday, I talked a lot about this idea of millstone people and millstone Christianity. And I think what drives me is, again, I don't have this heart to pick on my evangelicalism, but I have a real deep heart to warn if if we're doing millstone type of things where there are people that used to be part of the faith that are no longer a part of the faith because of things they directly experienced in the faith that have nothing to do with the spirit and heart of the gospel or the kingdom or Jesus, then that's an, that's, that's a massive, massive failure. Like, you know, that's that stuff that does keep me awake at night where I go, my concern is that in the name of Jesus, we are undermining Jesus in a lot of things because we've just been trained to do it this way. And if we don't stop and look, we're 
we're on the same path as then like Pharisees. Like that's the thing I always want to be aware of. And when I say that, I, I don't want it to sound like I'm being judgmental in the process of that. It might seem like it, but I, I'm trying to be do something more than be judgmental or maybe different than be judgmental, which is one of the biggest lessons I've realized in recent years uh, when I look at the Pharisees is we we are very tempted to become like Pharisees. And when I look at evangelicalism, I honestly look and I go, I think it it shares more traits with Pharisees than it really does with Jesus. And once again, I'm not trying to be mean or pick on us. It's kind of like, you know, my thing is like, if we don't identify what the problem is, we're not going to move toward the solution. We're just going to kind of stay in the midst of the problem and think the problem is actually a blessing and, and not a burden for the world around us. It's a blessing to us, but it burdens them. But for all the wrong reasons, like all of that is going to be a very unhelpful and ultimately dishonoring way to go about things. So that's where I want to make sure that we're looking and saying, okay, well, well, how are we potentially being like Pharisees and how can we be more like Jesus? And that's what this whole series is about. Because I think in the comparisons, when I have this versus that, really the model that I've been using through a lot of this is things that I see that are parallels to the way the Pharisees were operating in relationship to the kingdom that Jesus was promoting and how I think then in our modern climate, we have a tendency to do the same kind of thing. And we need to get back to the Jesus-oriented stuff. And at the core of all of that, it's that I really do believe, I mean, I actually authentically believe that the message of Jesus and the values of the kingdom are intended to, in fact, change the real um, kind of nuances and topography of our world. So what I don't want you to think is that I limit the gospel simply down to it saves souls so that they go to heaven, right? I think that is a very narrow uh, and, and very incomplete view of what it is the Bible's ultimate redemptive arc is all about and, and what the kingdom is all about. So I don't think it's just as basic as, hey, we need to preach the gospel so people get saved and they don't go to hell and they do go to heaven. And if we've done that, we've done our job. I don't at all believe that that is the totality of the job. Now, in this, I want to be clear, that is in the job description. So yes, that is what we are in part seeking to do. We want to see people reconciled to God. Paul gets into this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, right? He's passionate about that. We're meant to be ambassadors for that purpose, right? We're meant to go out and we are compelled and, and doing this compelled thing in a compelling way because we want to see people reconnected to God. So that is part of the heart behind this, but there's a deeper element to that as well, which is we're also wanting to see this message being, bring transformation to all of the structures and strata in a society because we believe that God is not simply reclaiming souls, but he is reclaiming all things. Jesus says in Revelation, behold, I make all things new. Jesus made this world and he said, it is good, good, good over six days and lands on very good. And we want to remember that the whole of this world is very good. And the structures that exist in this world, Jesus cares about, and he wants us invested in in such a way that we have influence, not just in the souls of people, but influence in the structures that people are a part of, influence in culture, society, civilization, and that we're seeking to bring flourishing and beauty and help and hope and innovation and creativity and life 
to all of the different facets of life. And so I want us to be clear that the message of Jesus is not simply for souls. The message of Jesus is for societal transformation, and it's for societal transformation by using his values, his priorities, his kingdom message to plug in to all the different parts that make society, society. So whether it be education or politics or economics or ethics, or you pick the thing, you know, occupational issues. I mean, Jesus is desiring to inform all of those things. Here's where I want to give the clarifier. I believe he wants to inform all of those things to make much of himself and his kingdom. He doesn't necessarily want us involved in all of those things so we can get our way of life. Because there's a difference, right? There's a difference between we want our way of life and we want his kingdom values to reign. Because as we have seen through the series, his kingdom values are pretty radical because they mean sacrifice and selflessness on our part and putting others before ourselves and it's loving our enemies and it's not retaliating and it's trying to reconcile broken relationships and turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and you know my speech, right? See, that's kingdom stuff. And I think what's happened in, in sort of the evangelical pursuits is that we've been saying we want our Christian way of life. And I think that we want our Christian way of life thing is different than we want the kingdom values to reign in our culture. So there's a difference. And that's the difference I'm talking about today. So the title for today's podcast is this difference between Jesus-driven politics and Jesus-diluting politics. Jesus-driven politics and Jesus-diluting politics. Not that Jesus is doing the diluting of politics, but rather Jesus' name, Jesus' fame, Jesus' message, and Jesus' goals are diluted in the name of Jesus because we're more committed to a certain political vision that protects our way of life than advances his kingdom priorities, right? That's kind of what I'm trying to dial in on today, right? And and here's something I was thinking about with this. And so I'm going to start in a weird place. I'm going to start with the phrase, we the people. And, and I want to start there with a basic civics lesson on this, right? This is just a simplified form. I'm, I'm no scholar by any stretch. You know, I'm, I'm happy to have just passed high school history, all right? Um, but this idea of we the people, I hear this a lot, and I hear it in a context more often than not in one political category more than another political category. So when it comes to many of my liberal friends, I don't see them often speak of we the people. I hear this more from uh, my more politically conservative friends that there is this emphasis and usually the statement is it made in relationship to government, right? And so it's kind of like it's we the people and it's not government. And so from that, there's kind of this tension of, you know, one phrase is is kind of the antithesis of the idea of government and politics and things of that nature. And what it's meant to communicate in a lot of ways is freedom, right? We the people is about freedom. And mainly what we mean is we the people is about the kind of freedom that we the people who use the phrase we the people envision as freedom. Now that's understandable and I I don't want to make it sound like I'm, I'm trying to pick on that at all. What I want to do is actually take a look at what we the people means from a civics perspective. Here's how it starts off in the Constitution with the preamble. 
we the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. And yet when they did this, it's amazing, they actually came up with this notion of a representative government. So we didn't come up with pure democracy. We came up with a republic. And in that republic, we said, we don't want all the people calling all the shots, but rather what we're going to do is we're going to take some of the people to vote some other people in. And those people are going to call some level of the shots. And so when this whole enterprise started, you know, women couldn't vote, uh, people of color couldn't vote, Native Americans couldn't vote. It was pretty much dudes that owned property that were white that could vote, right? So this thing's definitely evolved over the course of time. But even these white dudes in that property that could vote, they didn't all get a say-so, but rather they created representatives that went, and then they made decisions for we, the people. And so in this weird kind of trickle-up sort of way, you know, the ground-level layer of the majority of people decided on a select minority of people that would then go and represent them to make decisions, and the decisions that are then made represent we the people, right? So in that sense, if we kind of distill it into today's climate, when you live in the state of Texas, let's say you live there, but you don't agree with all of the policies of Texas. You don't agree with all the things that it does. You have to kind of be okay though and say, but we the people, this is what we've decided on. Right? The majority of the people in this trickle-up model of people can kind of vote at the lowest base to send representatives who make decisions in the legislature or in the executive branch. They do these things, and even in the judiciary, depending on whether it's a voted-on judge or it's a appointed judge or whatever else. But even all of that stuff, appointments come from those who were uh, voted in. And so ultimately, every state, whatever the decisions they're making, that's we the people. So if you live in a place like Texas and you don't agree with all of the things that are going on in Texas, what you do need to say is, hey, but this was the decision of we the people. And if I want to really respect the notion of we the people, then I need to respect this is what the majority of these people think. It's what they believe. It's what they want. That's how they want Texas to be run. Or I think about it in my state. I think about it in Washington where same kind of system. And so we, the people, have decided that this is going to be kind of our tone politically. Uh, We, the people, have decided this is going to be our legislature. These are going to be our judges. This is going to be our governor. This is we, the people, in action. And so if we respect this notion of we, the people, then what we have to be okay with is respecting the idea that, hey, This is what we as a collective majority, based on our founding documents, based on this notion of kind of representative form of government in a republic model, like this is what we do and that's what we're okay with because I believe that we the people is a healthy and good thing. Now, if I don't believe we the people is a healthy and good thing, not really. What I actually mean by we the people is, well, more my way of life or my standard of life. So if my state isn't doing things as I want... Now I'm frustrated. It's not we the people, but this is somehow wrong or it's control or it's tyranny. I think about my friends in Texas that are struggling with some of the the recent more um, pro-life laws in Texas. 
And they feel like it's tyranny. I think about people in my state that have feelings on some of the COVID lockdown measures and they feel like it's tyranny. But I go to these both sta- both these states and I go, but we the people, but we the people have decided these standards in these states to varying degrees, right? And so from that, if we really believe in this idea of we the people, then what we believe in is that the collective majority kind of is the deciding factor and and then we're okay with that right that that we understand that that's just the way it works and see i believe in particular as christians uh we should be most on board with the notion of we the people because it's my opinion when i read uh romans chapter 13 or first peter chapter 2 on submission to government see understand for me government is not uh the administration Right, whether it be uh, the executive branch administration of the federal government or the executive branch administration of a state government, those are administrations. That's not government. That's bureaucracy. That's the the people that have to administrate certain things. But that's not government. See, when I look at our founders and I look at this whole concept, government is we the people. Right. And as a Christian, then I go part of my whole identity in wanting to be involved in political process, to understand political discourse, to have political dialogue in part is to say, well, I'm, I'm also understanding that I have a role to play in being submissive to we the people. And I want to interact with we the people and I want to respect we the people. And so for so where I live in Washington, I go, hey, man, th- this this kind of more liberal blue state that I live in is the decision of we the people. And I want to be loving and submissive to we the people. So I want to be supportive in this sort of odd kind of missional way toward we the people. And if I lived in Texas, I would want to do the same thing. If I lived in Idaho, same thing. Vermont, same thing. So part of what it means to be a missionary then is to understand the dynamics of your society and culture and how you can be submissive to it, how you can serve it, how you can care for it, but also how you could influence it, right? That's the other part of this. And so at this point, you're probably going, great, he's talking about submitting to whatever state I'm in or the really the people of my state, the populace of my state, because that's the government. I- I'm going to be pretty... Pretty strong on that notion that government is not administrations, uh, government is not legislatures, government is we the people in our culture. That's what it's going to be. So so in that, I, I, I go, I want to have a loving disposition toward we the people, and I want to have a submissive disposition because this is what they've decided is the way they want things to be managed in a republic system, um, in a representative system. But I also want to bring then influence to that system. What this means is that I think it's important for the Christian, for the Christian to actually be involved in political thought and process. Because here's the thing that we've heard a lot in recent years from outsiders or people that leave evangelicalism. They go, the church is too political. And I'm going to disagree with that. I, I don't believe that evangelicalism has been too political. I just believe evangelicalism has been political in some wrong ways. Or maybe to put it differently, uh, it's been so focused in being political, at times it sounds like political is more important than biblical. Or maybe even going a step further, that some of the things that we hold to as our political standards 
are not the same standards the Bible would hold to or Jesus would hold us to on how we should be involved in the political process. And so from that, evangelicalism has made certain alliances in the political sphere with a certain type of political tone. And that's the thing I think we need to address. And so I don't think it means that that we as followers of Jesus need to be less involved in the, the whole notion of politics. In fact, I believe we should be more involved in the issues of politics, but our motives need to be pure and our agenda needs to be clear. And the motives can't be my way of life. Our motives can't be so I can make sure I'm secure, I'm protected, I keep my money, I get my way, I get my guns, I get my rights, I get my freedoms, I get what, like, not that I'm saying all those different kinds of things are wrong inherently, but if the notion is politics is first and foremost to serve my interests, I don't think that's a Christian concept. I think that's an earthly concept. I think it's an understandable concept. I think in a precarious world, I totally get it. But Jesus invites us to a risky venture with him in a precarious world where we're letting our guard down, not putting our guard up, where we're letting our lives go, not holding onto our lives. I mean, this is like Jesus 101 stuff. He's like, hey, man, you want to secure your life in this life, you're going to lose it. And he goes, what good is it to gain the world but lose your soul? So if our political mindset and processing as a Christian is politics is here to serve my interest, I vote to serve my interest and my way of life, I don't think that's a kingdom mindset. I don't think that's a gospel-oriented way of looking how we leverage our, our vote and our political voice. Because at the core of what politics is really all about is providing influence right? It's this influential agent within society, right? So it's a privilege to vote. And we have privilege as a people in which to bring influence to a society. And if we're going to be using that privilege of voting or that privilege of the process of politics to to wield some kind of tangible difference, then what we have to do is say, well, what is the tangible difference that would matter most? And to whom does it matter most that we try to bring that tangible difference? And from that then, is it just about my people, my tribe, my way of life, my values, and my identity? Or is it actually about how I'm supposed to invest things like my vote or like my politics into the betterment of others, into the betterment of my community. And not simply my community as I envision it would be best, right? Because that's part of the thing that can happen. You go like, well, that's what I'm doing because everybody should be just like me. But see, that's not necessarily the healthiest thing for a society or community. And and I believe, actually, when you start to look throughout the scriptures, 3,000 times God talks about caring for the poor and the needy and the marginalized and the oppressed and those who don't have. And, and, and so from that, much of what my particular point of view is on this is that the role of our politic is to actually sow righteousness into society. And by righteousness into society, what I'm talking about is not just simply moralism. What I'm talking about is true justness for those who have less justness than us. Sowing true care and concern and investment into those who have less care and investment in their lives. They're either impoverished, they're either undereducated, 
They're either uh, still suffering under the weight of historic decisions that were made within our culture, and they're still trying to dig out of those things. There's any number of factors that play into that, but that's then how there's this difference between I'm doing this Jesus-driven driven political thing versus I'm doing this political thing that dilutes who Jesus really is, who Jesus really cares about, and what Jesus really seeks of us. So to kind of light this fire a little bit, I'm not going to quote Jesus, but I'm actually going to quote Jeremiah. So way back in the Old Testament, God tells the people of Israel, they're in this foreign land. They've been taken away from their country, right? So uh, stripped away from their identity, their nationalistic distinctives, their property, right? They've lost everything. And so now they're in Babylon and it doesn't seem like it would be the coolest thing in the world to be there. But this is what God tells them to do. He says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel says to all the captives. He has exiled the Babylon from Jerusalem. So God's even to blame for them getting their butt whooped and sucked off to this other country. He tells them, build homes and plan to stay. Plant gardens and eat the food that they produce. Marry and have children. Then find spouses for them so that they may have, that you may have grandchildren. He says, multiply and do not dwindle. And this is the key and work for the peace and prosperity of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. That's Jeremiah chapter 29 verses four through seven. Now, here's what I love about this. Um, Their way of life is gone from the perspective of nationalistic identity, from the flexibility of going to the temple, like they are living in uh, a, a very different climate in Babylon, right? And and they could have complained about that. They could have said, it's unfair. It's not right. We don't want to do anything that helps this pagan Babylonian culture advance or succeed. And God says, no, that's not what I want you to do. I actually want you to do things that causes it to succeed that pagan Babylonian environment. I want you to do things that bring peace and prosperity to the city. These people that just bombarded you and stripped you of everything and took you to their domain. I want you to do good things for them. You use what you have to bless their world. For when you do that and you bring good welfare to them, there will be good welfare for you. So it's almost flipping of the script. Instead of saying, seek your interests first and then they'll have interests, what he actually is saying is, seek their interests first, first and then in that you will have your interests met as well. It's such a perspective shift. Put them first, put their community first, their city first, their people first, and from that you will be rewarded. But see, that is a Jesus thing. I mean, repeatedly, that's Jesus' whole point, right? When you're the least, that's when you're the greatest. When you decide to make everybody first and you decide to be last, well, that's what makes you genuinely first. See, the identity is always the same. Jesus does everything upside down and backwards. And he's been telling people to do it since the beginning, right? Even back into the Old Testament. This reminds me of a passage out of Proverbs uh, 29, verse 2. It says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked are in power, the people groan. Now, we might tend to hear that and in our little political minds go, oh, yeah, well, the party that I'm not a part of, they're the wicked ones. And when they're in charge, it's all bad. But when my party's in charge, everything's good. That's not what's meant there in Proverbs 29. 
the righteous in Proverbs are ones who say, you know what? I'm going to put the interests of others first. The wicked are the ones that say, I'm going to put my side first. The righteous say, it's not about my side. It's about our collective us. It's not about our way of life, but we the people. We all the people. See, the wicked just have their own agenda for their own desires. Whatever that is, right? Even if you had moralism, but it was their moralism, it would be a problem. But the righteous say, no, it's about the collective good. It's about the whole flourishing of society. That's what counts and that's what matters. See, this is what was so great about the life of Jesus, right? Because the poor were coming to him, the sick were coming to him, the needy were coming to him. And what we tend to forget is we we put all those in these compartments of, well, yeah, they're sick and they're poor and they're needy. What we're forgetting, though, is that they were the ones that were the lessers of society. They were not rising with the tide, far from it, right? Religion was rising rapidly with the tide. They had power, they had wealth, they had control and prestige and everything else. But but the poor, the broken, the needy, they had nothing. And, And so Jesus then tells the religious establishment, your problem is you're not righteous leaders. He says you're wicked leaders, in fact. Now, they loved their Bibles, and they believed in God, and they went to church every Saturday because it was Sabbath. It was called synagogue. Uh, You know, they did the entire system, right? So you would think that they were righteous leaders, and yet Jesus says, no, they're unrighteous and wicked leaders because they are not caring about all the people in an indiscriminate way. No, they were incredibly discriminate, and they were caring about some people, their people, and their way. And so this is why I believe, again, as everyday missionaries, while we are supposed to share the gospel with people so souls are saved, we are also meant to bring good to a community. We're meant to be good, bring good to our land. And by bringing good, it means righteousness. And by bringing righteousness, it's to all people, in particular, those people that you don't agree with. Or as we saw in Jeremiah, that we do it to those others first. And then from that, we receive blessing in return. I think about something that Paul says in Philippians 2. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take interest in others as well. See, this is how we should use our Jesus-centered politics. Not our evangelical politics or evangelicalism's politics, which tends to say, hey, we're a voting block. We're going to look out for you, right? We're going to vote to get our voting block protected. No, the Jesus thing is completely different. In fact, here's the challenge I would give to all of us, right? When we think about our ballot, when we think about all the things that we will need to vote on, when we think about how we engage in politics and what we try to manage as being important and less important and most important and everything else, and we look at the whole kind of topography or the template of American society with all the different problems that are out there, what we would do well to do is to grab our Bible, just take whatever the issues are and look through the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, or the Fruit of the Spirit, or the Definition of Love, and say, how would Jesus approach this? How would Jesus approach this? See, our tendency is to be like single-item voters or whatever else, but, but there's so much more going on. So much more going on, right? So, so in that, 
more than being passionate about my side versus their side, what we need to be passionate about is what Jesus is seeking to accomplish, what Jesus most values. Who are the people that Jesus most values? Who are the people that Jesus said, we better make sure we most value them too, because he is in them. That Matthew 25 passage always kind of gets me, right? He's like, I was in prison. Did you visit me? How did you see me as an incarcerated person? How did you see me as one that was arrested and serving time? How do you see me in that context? How do you see me as the poor? I'm on the streets. I'm living in downtown Seattle. I have no place to live. How do you see me? Do you see me as a blight or do you see me as one who bears the image of Christ? How do you speak of me and talk about me? Right? How, how do you want the city to address me and deal with me? I'm, I'm a mother with two kids. I can't even make the rent. I barely make enough money. I make 20 bucks an hour working at taco time, right? It's not good money for a mom raising two kids. How do you see me? How do you want to treat me when it comes to welfare and social systems and everything else? Do you want to help me or do you think I just need to pull myself up by my bootstraps? See, there are real practical problems that I believe Jesus speaks to in our society. And I don't think all the solutions are neat, clean, and tidy. Don't miss me at all. I, when I, even when we talk about the homeless, I go, man, there's a lot of challenges with violence and mental illness and everything else. And I'm not trying to try to make it sound like it's just a super easy, clean thing. What I'm saying is we need Jesus to inform how we fix these problems. We need Jesus to inform how we think about these types of things. It can't just be, well, I fall into this political category and I don't think government should pay for it. Like that's it's fine. Then who, how are you going to do it? Right? Let's get government out of it completely. Let's let's all start giving 50% of our income away. That's great. Is that the solution? Is that what we're going to do? We're going to stop taking vacations. And we're going to start giving to the poor more. I don't know what it is, but it's just, and I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm honestly going like, hey, if we're going to have Jesus inform us, then let's have Jesus inform us. But let's do it with that spirit of it's genuinely we, the people. And we want to do good things for the sake of the city by doing good things proactively, doing it first for them and to them, knowing that God promises that from that, it'll eventually come toward us. And we do this because we're looking out not only for our own interests, but the interests of others. And we do all of that because that's the way of Jesus. That's what Jesus did for us. And I believe that the message of the kingdom is to transform all of the world. I go back to the promised Abraham and you know, Genesis chapter 12, you know, that God wants to bless the nations. That not It's not just save the nation's souls. It's bless them, transform them, shape them into a beautiful thing that reminds God of what the project was started in Eden. We get to bring Eden every day to our environment with the things that we do and the things that we say and the ways that we act and react and work and care and invest and everything else. And yes, also the way we are engaged in our politics. But it has to be Jesus shaping all of that. It can't just be, hey, I like listening to Rachel Maddow. Or, hey, I like listening to Ben Shapiro. I'm a Fox News. I'm an MSNBC. I'm a CNN. I'm a liberal. I'm a conservative. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. We don't have that luxury, frankly. That's that's easy to do that. Jesus calls us to something altogether messy, which is we figure out how he informs everything everything. And you know what's really great about that though? 
If we really lock into that and we're constantly measuring life's decisions and life's calculations against what would Jesus do? How would Jesus speak to me in this? What would he ask me to give up for this? What would he tell me is the best for his kingdom and the decision I'm about to make? If we do that, man, that's going to saturate everything we do in life. It's going to shape the way we see our world. And from that, we will be effective everyday missionaries.